There was a language. There were the parameters. I could step in now. That was the liberation for me. I'm not even talking about the past. I'm talking about the present. It's not an accusation. It is a plea for the life of this country. Instead of eliminating the causes that create that condition, he tries to cover it up by accusing his accuser of teaching hate. People don't hate each other. And people start talking to each other, and then they start talking to each other, they find out who's the problem. It's when the talking ceases that the ground becomes fertile for violence. So keep the conversation going. Hi, welcome back to Let's Talk About Race, the podcast where we do away with yelling and headlines in favor of having in-depth discussions on the nuances of racial relations in America. I'm thrilled to be joined by a very special guest today, Corey Pegues, a retired inspector who served 21 years on the NYPD before retiring to become an adjunct professor of criminal justice and a critically acclaimed author of the memoir, Once a Cop. He's been featured in national media such as The Daily Show, CNN, USA Today. Corey, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So, Corey, just before we get started, I came into contact with you through the Grand Council of Guardians. Do you mind taking a quick moment to tell our viewers who you are and what the organization's purpose is? Yes. Uh, thanks for having me again. Of course. I was a 21-year veteran of the New York City Police Department. Uh, I retired as a deputy inspector, ran two of the most violent facilities in the New York City area, and also I was commanding officer of the 67th Precinct, which is the second most violent precinct in the city. That's in East Flatbush, Brooklyn. When I was young, uh, I was a misguided child, and I, I was in the streets doing some things that I'm not proud of today. I was selling drugs, carrying guns, robbing people, and I just changed my life. And along the way, uh, I got my bachelor's, my master's, went to Columbia University, again, adjunct professor at two different colleges. And so um, I did a transformation of my life, and which leads me here today. The Grand Council Guardians comprises of law enforcement officers, African-American law enforcement officers in all different genres, police, corrections, courts, district attorneys, all different uh, facets of, of law enforcement. And um, I've been involved with them for over two decades. Right now, there seems to be a lot of tension between black Americans and police officers. And you and the members of your organization occupy a very unique space where you're actually, you have perspective on both sides of this issue, being both a black American and a police officer. And so, you know, I think it's it's very interesting. It's very important at this time because I have to admit, I've been to several protests and at certain points I felt a little bit awkward because, you know, I've seen largely white crowds kind of chanting NYPD is racist sometimes to a group of black officers. And it feels like there's a little bit of a kind of cognitive dissonance there. But also looking on your website, black police officers tend to have a different perspective than white police officers. So you guys actually cite a 2016 poll by Pew, where of the 8,000 officers surveyed, 69% of black officers believe that the country needed to continue making changes to give blacks equal rights with whites. And that's compared to just 6% of white officers. So that's a, a magnitude of over 11 times difference. And so that feels like a really big disparity. You having served 21 years as a black police officer, do you feel like you experienced that divergence in opinion on the job? Uh, not necessarily. Uh, I retired seven years ago. In my early years of uh, policing, um, it has always been the same, pretty much a male white dominated police force. And they, in the police, they never really budged off white dominance in policing. 
and treating black and brown communities different than they treat other communities that's non-minorities. And that that even still factors in today. So for me, I, have, I haven't even up until this point seen the mindset of policing changing in black and brown communities, even though the numbers of minority officers has increased around the country, even like in the New York City Police Department, uh, they say like the minority is the majority. When you look at the police department as a whole, there's more minorities than non-minorities. But when you scale up to the power positions, it's still skewed at probably 70-30% male white dominated. Right. Well, do you feel like the attitude on how to handle crime in minority neighborhoods was different among minority police compared to white police? The minority officers always had a different mindset of dealing with the police, even the ones who um, started drinking the blue wall of silence juice. They still grew up black, grew up Hispanic, grew up black and brown. And so we understand some of the plights, you know, for me, like growing up, I I know what it is to eat a mayonnaise sandwich. I know what it is to see my mother and father fighting, having domestic violence issues. I know what it is to see a a homeless person on the street or alcoholic or someone doing prostitution. So all of these things I I was already aware of prior to coming into policing. So I was sensitive to those facts and I also knew how to deal with them And, and obviously dealing with crime, drugs, guns, and all of those types of things. So I had a little more compassion than non-minority officers who just come in, what they know about the communities, what they see on TV, the boys to men and, you know, New Jack City and all these things. So their mind is shaped that they're walking into an area that's, you know, it's just animals there. You know, I wrote in my book a story about when I became the commander of the 67th Precinct. The chief told me, my boss, he told me this, I need you to look out for this cop, Smith. Sit him down and talk to him. He only has two years on the job. He has like six complaints of assaults, hitting people. He was a white Irish cop, young cop. So I sat him down. I said, well, what's your problem? And he said, well, you know, to be honest, I didn't understand the people when I first got here. So he just told me basically he didn't understand black people. And so I told him that, you know, you know, these people look like me. So, you know, these, that could be my son, my nephew or whatever. Anyway, I just had to have a conversation with him to get his mindset to know what was going on. He ended up, after having a conversation with him, I signed a sergeant to be, um, have him drive the sergeant with strict supervision. And he ended up actually being one of my best cops after we put some things in place to nurture him and show him and teach him about what's going on in the community. So if you're not doing that, then you're going to have a bunch of misguided cops coming in with a mindset of what they learn on TV without the police teaching them about the community. That's that's great that you had that success story. Do you think that that Officer Smith, is that a fairly common case? Is that a fairly minor case? Like, how common is it to have white police officers that, you know, come into largely black communities not having had much personal experience with black Americans? I think that's, as we're talking in terms of numbers, it's definitely got to be 90%. But that's just America. Like, white people usually live in white neighborhoods, black people live in black neighborhoods, Spanish, you know, so on and so forth. So that doesn't make it wrong. That's just how America is. You know, people are most comfortable in their environment and what they know. So I get that, totally get that. But policing has to do a lot more about acclimating cops to the communities in which they come. Would it be nice to have an all-white police 
force in a white neighborhood, yeah. A black police force in a black, yeah. But that's that's not going to happen. It's never going to happen. So you Perfect. will have a melting pot of police officers, but it's up to the municipality to train the cops up to know about how to deal with the community, the criminal element, the, the preachers, the young boys, the drug dealers, so on and so forth. It's up to the police to teach them. I don't know exactly how widespread the membership is for the Grand Council, but I know that there are, I think it's 18,000 different police departments in the United States. And one of the big criticisms, like if we look at Ferguson um, back in 2014, there was that report, and it was essentially all white cops from surrounding towns and no cops that actually came from Ferguson itself. And I think that's a story that a lot of minorities believe is is the case with their police department. Do you think there is a way to, if you have an all-white police force, and again, I don't know if any of the members of your organization have had experience with it, but if you're in like a all-white or, or very largely majority white police precinct, is there still a way to have those conversations to teach those nuances or are those just kind of inherently going to have bias? Yeah, it's definitely going to be inherently having bias. Uh, you know, Ferguson actually probably is more common than people suspect. You know, I was appalled to find out that uh, they had a police department that only had, you know, 95% black community and 95% white cops. You know, they had deep-rooted issues. Their whole school board was white also. So right. there was a lot of cronyism down in Ferguson. It, obviously, it was it was clear to see. You could probably look through the police department. It was next door neighbors getting jobs. It was cousins. It was uncles, so on and so forth. So you got to make sure that leadership is in place to ensure that that stuff doesn't happen. I think that all police departments should be recruiting within. I think it should be like maybe a 10-mile radius where you recruit from. It should be no one outside coming in. And it, it should represent the community in which you serve. If the community is 40% minority, then 40% of police departments should be minority. If it's 70% white, and 70% white. That's just my personal thoughts. But no matter what the numbers are, the cops need to be trained up to respect the community. Definitely. And I think that's a big call that you see in the protests right now is that community police um, divide that's happening. One of the other criticism that's being levied a lot is that police are racist. Just the police system in America is inherently racist is something that a lot of people are saying. Do you think that's a fair criticism? I think that criticism is spot on. So you got to understand, like somebody like me that came in the police department in 1992, I had a partner, you know, I would ride with somebody that had 20 years. So you figure he came in in the 70s, a male white, an Irish guy, he came in in the 70s and he was third generation police. His father came in in the 50s, his, his um, grandfather came in in the, in the 30s. So they were getting stuff passed down. Like, you know, here we are in the 90s. And you're trying to bring in tactics that your grandfather told you in the 30s. Like, wait, 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 wait. Policing has changed over the last six decades. And so most minorities have been like first generation going back like to the 90s. And you have all these other cops that's now minorities coming in. You're getting the exact same training, but they're getting training at home telling them this is how you treat them when you go out there. Now, I want to kind of speak to that because it, it seems like you're talking about almost a generational culture of policing, which I think is outside of the specific legislation. It's really that culture that kind of seems like it's the issue at the moment. I've experienced this firsthand in a number of ways, but most recently, 
I've just been trying to have conversation with police. You know, the the point of this podcast is to have conversations with differing perspectives. Given there's so much happening about police, I figured it very prudent to have conversations with police. And despite every avenue I've taken, it's incredibly hard to get police to speak on record. And I think that in general, that blue wall of silence, I think it's called, is very, very common. I'm not the only one experiencing this. Do you think there's truth to that uh, criticism? Oh, definitely. Police don't want to talk. You got to understand, it's a very machismo, masculine job, not taking anything away from the women. And it's deep-rooted in, in generations. So, believe it or not, police actually doesn't think that they do anything wrong. I can promise you right now, if you was if you did a survey of 100 cops, I can promise you 50% of them are going to tell you that the George Floyd incident was it wasn't nothing wrong with it. That's how deep-rooted this generational um, racism is in policing. When you even look at the you look at the Eric Garner incident in New York City and Staten Island, you see the PBA president for New York City Police Department, Pat Lynch. He actually went on national television and said that it wasn't a chokehold; it was a jujitsu move that Pantaleo did to Eric Garner. And this is coming from the president, so. Like, these guys are so wired to defend, defend, defend. They don't see any wrong. Even, like, with the George Floyd, like, we actually saw the breath taken out of a man's life. This is actually the first time that I've seen police officials kind of saying that something went wrong. They're not even outright saying that it was wrong. They're saying, you know, they're using... um verbiage that, you know, we don't agree, we don't condone the behavior without saying he's a murderer, he should be under the jet. We all know that. But when you look and you see what these PBA, these union presidents, FOP, so on and so forth, they're still not like outright right denouncing the murder on national television of somebody. Because that's how deep-rooted the racism is and how much they devalue the life of a black man. This is coming from a 21-year veteran who I love the police. I just love good police. My daughter's a cop and my nephew's a detective. So I don't outright hate the police. And I just hate bad police and bad um, policy. But I do know what they're made up of and I know how they, they operate and think. That's why I'm so dangerous to police around the country because I know all of the inner workings. And I'm going to expose them for what they are, a bunch of racists running around with guns. It is honestly refreshing to hear that from someone who has had experience, because I think right now a lot of the what you hear cops say is that you don't understand our job. You're not in the trenches with us, um, which is part of the reason I've been trying to speak with police and part of the reason why I found your organization of black police to be so important at this moment in time. But I want to go back what you're talking about. You like good cops and bad cops. And this is kind of where a lot of the divide, I think, happens, where people say, you know, there's a couple of bad apples in every job. You can't justify the entire workforce as being part of that culture. But I think with cops, what I found and what you're kind of confirming is that even if there are good cops, there is very little accountability for those bad cops. You know, you don't even hear, you're saying the president of the PBA won't even go on record denouncing what happened to Eric Garner, even though everyone in the country seems to disagree. So if you allow bad cops to act without speaking up, you're an active enabler, at least in my opinion. So I guess from your perspective, how much of that silence 
is cops actually agreeing with the tactics being used? You know, per your point, thinking that what happened was okay versus how much of that do you think is silence that they feel they're unable to speak up within a system even if they disagree with it? Well, I think it's a, it's a percentage of both, but uh, I think on the higher end, it's more that cops just want to be silent. They don't want to get involved because they don't want to be an outcast. You got to understand, like somebody for me who has been speaking out my entire career, not just when I retired, I've been speaking out my entire career. So there was a, you know, a target on my back. Don't, don't go to lunch with him. Don't talk to him. Stay away from him. So it, for me, it was about just going to work and doing the job, doing the job the right way. I didn't go to no cop meetings and I didn't do none of these things that normally cops do because I wasn't worried about fitting in with the police. So a lot of these cops, they're under pressure to fit in because they want to be like, and I guess everyone wants to be like, but that never was high on my agenda. I just wanted to do the job, do the right thing and change some lives. And do you feel like your experience was hard because of that? You know, like it, it sounds like you're definitely an exception in that regard. How did that affect you personally? I'll tell you what, I rose to the highest echelons of the police department. So it, was, it, it, worked, it, it, it worked out well for me. I came out of the military, so I kind of knew what the rank structure is. I knew that the power was at the top. And the only way you can affect change is at the top. And in policing... Uh, it's a paramilitary organization, so the orders are top down, not bottom up. So I knew if I stay on the bottom, I would always have to listen. But if I went to the top, I can implement. I could make sure that I set in policies that treat the communities in which I serve the right way. So I was laser focused. Where most people just want to come to work, get along, don't want to take no promotional exams or anything. They don't want to deal with having responsibility. I was I was laser focused to make sure that I leave the dent in the NYPD, which I, I know that I have. Yeah, and I think you did. And I, I want to go over something specific that I read on your website about when you became the commanding officer of the 67th Precinct, which from my understanding is one of the most violent precincts in the city of New York. On your city, on your website, sorry, it says you reduce crime through excellent community police relationship building. Can you elaborate a little bit what that entailed and why it worked? Yeah, so... Um, so I was doing things that was quite unusual in policing when I started becoming an executive. Like I would walk the streets with my suit and tie. Obviously, I had to wear a suit because I was an inspector. Um, so I would walk the community. I would go to the, the the hardest parts of the community and go talk to the drug dealers, go shake their hand, let them know, listen, I'm in charge now. I know what you guys are doing. I hate you. I can't be out here, man. I can't do this stuff. Change your life. Get off the streets. I would, you know, from going to speak to drug dealers to going to nursing homes. I would have lunch, you know, once a month at the um, two nursing homes. I would sit down with the, you know, the elderly and have lunch. I would go to school. I implemented so many different programs in the schools for kids, cops and kids sports day where we all played baseball, basketball, soccer, cricket. Uh, the police commissioner at the time, Raymond Kelly, would come down and play the drums and just meet the people. I created this national um, organization a model right now, if you can, people can Google it, called um, God Squad. The God Squad is uh, a group of men and women who are pastors. So what was happening being as the second most violent priest in the city, I was constantly getting people shot. And when I would go to the scene, they had no religious foundation. They didn't have anybody that could console them. 
So I had a meeting with all the different denominations of the religious sector in my my area and, and said, listen, I want to create this team called a God Squad. And what I want to do is give you the power to come behind a yellow tape, help these people in times of mourning. When, when I get a call or somebody's getting a shot, you get the call, you meet me at the hospital, you console this family, you help them with the funeral. Sometimes we'll help with funeral expenses, so on and so forth. And I need y'all to walk the streets at night to go out to these violent places and talk to these people. And now, <clears throat> you know, the New York Times wrote a big article on them, and they're off and running. It's called the God Squad. So these were things like no other police commander was thinking about doing things like that. But you got to understand, for me, I, I was policing in black and brown communities. So I knew what the problems and socioeconomic issues were in the communities in which I served. So I knew which buttons to push <clears throat> that was going to be successful. Definitely. And I commend you for thinking outside the box. I know, as you said, policing is a paramilitary organization. It's tends to be very by the book by nature. So to take, you know, a leap of faith and do something that you thought would work, I really do commend you there. I want to talk a little bit right now you hear defunding the police. That has become a catchphrase that's very popular and it speaks a little bit to what you know you mentioned, but I think more broadly it speaks about trying to include others who aren't cops, you know, mental health professionals. Uh, homeless counselors, people that have more specific expertise rather than people whose job is mostly to enforce the law. I don't think that's been received positively by the NYPD, I guess would put it lightly. What are your thoughts on the defund police movement? I think defunding the police, I don't know if that's the right word that they should use. I think that word defunding pissed a lot of people off on both sides. I think it should have been more restructuring policing. In Denver, Colorado, they have this unit called cohorts. They've been in existence for 20 years. Cohorts basically took all the pressure off the police department. You have a homeless person, they show up, you got an emotionally disturbed person, they show up prior to the police to handle the situation. They've been very successful and it's been modeled around the country. And for the life of me, I can't believe it hasn't been modeled in the big cities, LA. New York, Chicago, Detroit, so on and so forth. But they're very successful. You have to make sure that we lock police in to police work. So what happened is police has been, um, have been um, pretty much the dumping ground for everything. Old lady falls down <clears throat> and the house can't get up, call the police. Y- your son, you know he's on medication. He didn't take his medication, but he's not violent. And you know he's acting a little irrational. They call the police. Police are in the business of locking people up. Those incidents I talked about, police get training in those three incidents, but you know what? They get six hours, eight-hour blocks of training. Well, you got a, a, a mental health professional who got degrees to deal with. A cop got seven, eight hours of training on that. So who do you think is better equipped to go? You look at psych wards all over the country. An emotionally disturbed person is acting irrational, acting out. The mental health professional is able to calm them down. You put a cop in that situation, a cop is going to kill him. Because the first time a person screams at him or yells, the cop pulls his gun out and kills him. They don't have the training to do it. It's not about defunding. It's about restructuring, policing, and have cops deal with the seven major crimes. Rape, robbery, grand larceny, burglary, assault, and homicide. That's what they should be dealing with. All this other stuff, give it out to somebody else that can deal with those situations. Let's talk about training for a second, because you talk about, you know, seven, eight hours of mental health training. 
I think another criticism of policing like right now has been that they're under-trained. I actually don't know the exact amount of hours, but I believe it's about four months in the academy. Please correct me if I'm wrong. But even if we were to, say, focus on the seven major crimes, how do you feel about the training that police are getting coming out of the academy? I think the cops are well-trained. I'm not an advocate for saying that the cops don't have training, because if you're saying that the cops don't have training, then you're saying that the, the uh, municipalities, the mayors, the governors, the police commissioners, they're all putting inadequate cops out on the street, which should probably be lawsuits all over the place. The cops are getting the training. The problem is we're not holding them accountable for the training that they have. Yeah, again, <clears throat> an example, Aragona, right? He was on the internal records of NYPD for over 20 years that you can't use a chokehold. So why did it take five years for them to fire him? You understand what I'm saying? So the training is there. They're not sending them out. They don't have the adequate, you know, uh, domestic violence training, whatever. They're trained up enough to deal with the situation. Can there be more? Yes. But one thing that your audience got to understand and know, you can't train a racist to not be a racist. I, I agree with a lot of that. I guess this speaks to a broader question. Why is it so hard to hold police accountable? You know, in the Eric Garner case, I think it was six officers. None of them got convicted of any charges, even though the chokehold, per your point, was not allowed. So why is it so hard for us to hold police accountable even when they're explicitly breaking rules? Well, one of the major issues of not holding police accountable is the district attorney delaying in bed with the police. And I say that um, not even in a bad way. The police needs the district attorney. The district attorney needs the police, you know, to solve case. So now, when a cop does something wrong, you're looking at that same DA who you're helping close all of these cases. And DAs, they're judged on how many cases they clear. So now, if the district attorney pisses off the police department, it's not about that one case that they're going to blow. It's about the 2,000 caseload that now they're going to have difficulty dealing with the cops to close these other cases. So I think that whenever a cop is involved in a criminal matter, it should be a special prosecutor. If you look at the Aragona in Staten Island, the district attorney, he didn't even bring it to a grand jury. Like why? Staten Island is known as a cop-loving community. There's a lot of cops that live out there. They're, they love the cops. They never do anything bad against the cops out there. We in New York City, especially people in the know and the police world, we knew that there would never be a conviction out in Staten Island. It's just not going to happen. Yeah, but it feels almost like nationwide you're seeing almost no convictions. Um, there have been so many cases of all races, honestly, and there yeah, hasn't. Look at, look at the Brooks case in Atlanta, the poor kid that was jogging through the streets. And, you know, he got killed. They didn't actually bring this case up to three months later when somebody showed a video. Yeah. There's no video. Brooks is murdered and nobody knows. The case goes away. And it yeah. was all because the DA had a relationship with the chief or the cop and the people that shot him. So everything is all, you know, who knows who, cronyism, connections. And once you get rid of that, you have to bring outside people to deal with all of these different cases involving police misconduct. Um, can't solely count on the district attorney. I have no confidence in local district attorney solving any cases. What does that mean for 
the average American voter. Because one thing I've been told lately, I feel like a lot there's a lot of frustration on what can we do. And one of the things that I've been told and I've heard is vote local, vote for your district attorney. If the commissioner is an electable position, vote for the commissioner, the mayor. But I'm a little bit more pessimistic because you're still having to choose for that position. So the DA position outside of the individual will still have those same structural problems you're referencing, which is they got to get a clearance rate, which is beholden to the cops that are going to you know cooperate with them. So I don't really have an idea of what to do. Do you, you know, have you seen examples with special prosecutors? Like, how do we actually make something like that happen? Well, one of the things I like, uh, I don't like the 99% things that our current president, Donald Trump, does. But one thing I did love about him was when he ran for president, he told America, for judges, I'm going to choose out of these 25 people. He had a list of 25 people who, if he get elected president, he's going to choose from this list, list for judges. And I think that's something that American citizens take a hold of. When somebody's running in your municipality for mayor, for governor, whatever, you should have them produce a list. Who's going to be your police commissioner? Give me the five names. So if you don't agree with the five people, because you have to understand, if somebody bring in somebody that don't have your best interest, who do you think they're going to make your police commissioner? It's like I live in a little town in Long Island. My police department is 50 cops. I know the mayor. I go to the school board meeting. I go to the budget meetings. I go, I'm heavily involved. And obviously I vote in every single election. But I'm holding that mayor's seat to the fire. I'm holding the, you know, the principals, everybody. You have to be involved. So again, if you're, if people are running and you hold their feet to the fire by saying, show me who you're going to elect. Don't tell me like Joe Biden, I'm going to elect a, a woman. No, no, no. Which list? Give me the five women that you're going to elect. So now, now we know. So now if you like the five choices he got, you're not going to have no problem voting for him because he will pick one of these people to be the next vice president. And you're going to be comfortable with it because you already know. It won't be no aha surprise moment where they make this breaking breaking news announcement and it's somebody that you're like, wow, but look at the background of this person. So Definitely. when people are running, we got to make sure that we hold their feet to the fire. And I'm, I will be asking who's going to be your police commissioner, who's going to be your school chancellor, who's running sanitation. Like, start holding these elected officials accountable. Give us a list. You don't have to just choose one. Give me five people who you're going to choose from. So now yeah. we can make informed decisions when we're voting. I think that's the only way to go around it. How do we evaluate those positions? Uh, you know, I consider myself decently informed, not the best, but I have done the research on, you know, my local state senators, mayors, things like that. I don't really have any idea how to evaluate a DA or a judge. You know, like I think this recent election that I was at, there was judges and I even tried Googling and I was on, you know, Ballotpedia and stuff, but I've, I have no idea how to evaluate a judge. I really don't. And I don't think the average citizen does. So in those examples, it, it almost feels like a little exhausting. Like I got to elect the mayor, the state senator, the assembly person, and then like in further down the line, like is there a quick way for the average citizen who's not an expert in law enforcement but wants to see less brutality? Is there a way for them to kind of evaluate this is a good DA, this is a good judge? Well, the only way, because those a lot of that stuff is in public information, but the only way you can do it is when they're running, you ask them. Say, listen, we want you to produce your, your caseload for the last 15 years. We want to know what your conviction rate was. 
We want to know a, a racial breakdown. Like, that's how you really hold these people's feet to the fire. If you're asking them those tough, hard questions, and not just one person, like the community comes down and says, we want to know what your conviction rate was in the, for your career. We want to know what the racial breakdown was. We want to know what the, what the gender was. And you can break it down even further. But you have them produce that information. That brings me to another question. You know, this podcast is called Let's Talk About Race. You know, the emphasis being on having conversations. If you were to encourage my listeners to have a conversation that they might not be having currently, what would you encourage them to talk about? I would actually encourage everyone to <clears throat> talk about the elephant in the room. And the elephant in the room is racism in America today. Yeah, uh, minorities have moved forward, you know, presidents, judges, uh, police commanders. We've gone a long way. But there's still racism in America, from education to policing, uh, funding, contracts, so on and so forth. How can we try to level the playing field? And the only way you're going to level it is having real conversations with people. Not, hey, uh, I'm not racist, I have white friends, or no, I'm not racist, I have a black friend, or a black boyfriend, or a white girlfriend. No, we have to have real conversations and it's okay if, like, some people are racist and they don't even know they're racist. It's just how they was born and raised. And, and I'm talking about all different ethnicities. There's some black racists, some white racists, so on and so forth. But if everyone have conversations, that's the only way you're going to be able to get to understand one another by putting everything on the table and really giving your thoughts out. Yeah, um, and I think that, I agree with that tremendously. I think that on both sides, there tends to be a little bit of closed-mindedness. There tends to be a little bit of premature judgment. And I think that, again, one of the reasons I really want to speak with you is I do see that huge divide. We're talking conversations, police to civilian. is It feels like there's very, very little conversation. And you know, given that these are, the relationship is police protecting and serving citizens whose tax dollars pay for them. It just feels like right now there's been a complete breakdown. And I think that we need to exercise a little bit more empathy and humanity and stop generalizing people. And even if they are false, even if someone you know has some racial bias that they don't, think is bad. And if you have a cop that is acting more aggressively than they should, I don't think that the current climate of shouting at one another has had any progress. You know, so I really do. I'm very pro conversation, honest dialogue. So with that, I'm I really appreciate you taking the time to have an honest dialogue with me um, as someone that has expertise within the police system. Thank you so much for your insight today, Corey. And I again, I really appreciate your time. Okay, I appreciate it. But let me just leave you with this with your audience. The police needs the community, but the community didn't ask you to be a police officer. And we just let that resonate. You're going to be a cop. The expectation is for you to come and give 100% of respect to the community. For listeners interested in learning more about the Grand Council of Guardians, you can visit them at gcgnys.org. And for those wanting to learn more about Corey's story, you can find him at his website at coreypegues, C-O-R-E-Y-P-E-G-U-E-S dot com. And as always, feel free to drop me a line at letstalkaboutrace.net.